All right, you happily miserable accursed. For just another week, we're down to three quarters of our team. Jungle Jordan, or Jord of the Jungle, if you happen to be a fan of the original cartoons of the great Jay Ward, is still off camping in the wilds of Costa Rica. But Corey, Bullwinkle Moose Tonight is here, and Scott, Rocky J. Squirrel Reed is here with me. Talk about the day's events. How are you guys? Doing great. Wearing Doing my great. Oilers juice jersey to, to make fun of you guys a little bit. It was a yeah. Oilers game. Um, came up with a great marketing idea, by the way. Uh, you know, they, they really need to get a better mascot. Like the one they have right now is Hunter or something. It's like a Lynx. You know, how could you not have a giant oil drop named Greasy? Who could you know do all <laughs> kinds of things? Like you could go hug the opposing players, get oil all over them. It would be fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. And and if anyone complains, just say it's hey man, it's greasy. He, you know, nobody can control him, man. Well, what uh, what is what is Oily the Spot doing right now? I don't know. I don't know. Oily the Spot. <laughs> oily the Spot. Oily the Spot. I, I, I think Greasy is a better name, man. It's, yeah. uh, it's more more now kind of you know leveraging off the the Flyers' success with their mascot. Yeah, no, I was just uh, you know. Worried about what Oily was up to these days. Um, Scott, you look sad. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Did you know, David, that <laughs> um, almost everything in my life is hard? So, yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. Like, I- I'm still recovering from the 49ers game last night. I uh, The last two 49ers games, they have won their two playoff games. They're now going to be in the Super Bowl. You would think that'd be cause for celebration. But the wins have been so spare and the games have been so difficult and the team has looked so off that I, I I can't there's no joy there's no joy in the winning there's just the, there's just extreme despair in the play and I um I'm, I'm not I'm not psychically recovered from last night's game no you you will you will enjoy their victory in the Super Bowl and things are unfolding for them as they should because probably the I, best team lost last night uh we're talking about Baltimore. Baltimore? Yeah. yeah. I thought Baltimore, Baltimore scared me. I'm actually happy mm. that Kansas City won because I think they've got a better shot at beating them. Yeah. All right. We've already bored our audience. You know, they exactly. really don't. They don't really care about, about any of this. So, hey, Rocky, watch me pull a podcast out of my hat. This week oh. on The Curse of Politics, <laughs> we'll do a roundup of the Liberal Cabinet and Caucus retreats. And he's got pre- kind of a Mr. Peabody thing going, actually, right? Sherman? Sherman. He's Sherman. Yeah, but I married Natasha, so fuck you guys. Right? Where's Mr. Big? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Not in this room. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll do a roundup of the Liberal Cabinet and Caucus retreats and the uh, preparation for the upcoming sitting in the House of Commons. Um, we will talk about the federal court's ruling on the invocation of the Emergencies Act not being justified. And how that's going to play out in politics, certainly going to play out in fundraising. We'll see how it plays out in politics. Um, our cursed clipping is from Zian Lum at uh, Politico.com on Tucker Carlson's sold-out culture war appearances in Alberta. And uh, whether that's something that the Trudeau government thinks they can make something out of or use, use in some way. And then Gordon Pinson calls out for a hey use. So, boys, uh, I'm in Tel Aviv. I was oh. on the Gaza border this morning. Wow. Right on. And what did your eyes observe? Uh, we, you can still hear 
uh, mortar shells. You can still hear gunfire. You can uh, hear planes and drones. All of that is still all of that is still going on. I, I've been I've been here with a group sponsored by Sija, and we're looking at and meeting with the Israelis that were affected by uh, by October seventh. So that's been a fairly somber fairly somber experience as you go through villages and towns and hear the stories relate of uh, skydivers dropping in and going house to house, killing people. It's pretty, uh, it would be chilling. Yeah. Pretty dark I saw stuff. the footage. That was tough <clears throat> enough. Yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, that, 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 uh, that's, that's my news, but let's, let's get going. So the liberals had both a cabinet retreat last week and a caucus retreat, uh, last week. Uh, the cabinet retreat, they had a bunch of thinkers in to talk to them about uh, the policy areas they should be focusing on. And then in their caucus retreat, sounded like it was an upbeat session. The prime minister gave a campaign-style speech to kick it off. The MPs all rallied and put that Ken McDonald guy back in a box. And uh, and so that all seemed like they were happy um, coming coming out of that. Uh, but Polyev's having a pretty good week, too. Uh, Polyev's having a pretty good week, too. Polyev's recruiting some good candidates um, from some provincial governments around the uh, around the country. I don't know Parm Gill, but they're pretty excited about him. And I know Ellis Ross is a pretty big name out in uh, British Columbia. Uh, and again, they've got the uh, hourly abacus poll that says that uh, they're 15 points up and that people would choose Polyev over Trudeau uh, as best prime minister, which is, I mean, I'm just going to explain this because it may sound silly because they're ahead of the polls. You would think that would be the case. But it's actually extremely rare, given the existence of the Bloc Quebecois, uh, the NDP, and the Greens, that a majority of Canadians would ever think that the conservative leader was the right person, was the best person to be prime minister. Um and so that is the case now. So, you know, if, the, if you bake in the Quebec numbers where Polyev's popularity is pretty low, that must mean in English Canada that choice is pretty clear-cut uh, between Polyev and Trudeau. Um, Singh, of course, didn't have a week. The NDP never have a week. They went to a funeral, um, and, uh, and that's about it. So, Scott, why don't you lead us off? How do you think the... Well, let's start with the Liberals. How do you think the Speaking Liberals... funerals, Scott... Scott, exactly. Uh, liberals coming at you, you know, you've, you've been in a few of these cabinet and caucus retreats, and do you think that they have given these guys some new mojo? This isn't what you asked, but my favorite caucus cabinet retreat memory is when we were in central Ontario, I think maybe like Blue Mountain or something like that. We had a, we had a cabinet retreat or a caucus retreat. And all I remember is that I got up early because I wanted to go to the gym. There was a small gym. I was going to go for a run on the treadmill. And Reg Elcock had gotten into Right away, his- this is a lie, everybody. Right Re- away, this story lacks credibility. <laughs> That's not true. I, mean, I, I have to run to stay this fat. And Reg, Reg Elcock... <laughs> of all people had I guess gotten he'd gone through one of those manic phases God rest his soul he'd gone through one of those manic he would go through these manic phases where he's like I'm gonna lose weight and so he uh but he didn't have proper gym clothes or even think remotely clothes. so <laughs> I walk 
I'm walking to the gym and there's Reg coming out and he's literally dressed like Daisy Duke. He's got a pair of cutoff jean shorts <laughs> with like a rope for a belt or something. Like it was unreal. So uh, was he and then he's wearing dress shoes. Except he's 350 pounds. <laughs> well, and then he kind of cornered me uh, <laughs> and wanted to talk about the agenda and how he thought that he would be a good idea if he had like a large, maybe six to seven hour portion of it dedicated to his thoughts on, <laughs> on uh, digital government. I was like, okay, Reg, I, this whole thing is just hurting me. Uh, I thought, listen, I all these things in step, uh, one step at a time, uh, I actually thought and once the cabinet retreat was over, I thought to myself, you know what? They didn't have a bad cabinet retreat. And, and this is why. I mean, what's the difference between a bad cabinet retreat and a good cabinet retreat? I don't know. But I know this. I know the liberals have to do better in 2024 than they did in 2023, right? Or there will be no 2025, right? <laughs> so Just be I, canceled. I thought that it, in some, was a little bit better because they're at least doing a couple of things that I think they 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 need to do. One, they were driving news and they were... They were working hard, and I'm not going to say their execution was always flawless. It was not. But they were trying to drive news, and they did seem to drive news for three, four days with announcements that seemed a little bit more bullseyed around issues that people are actually talking about and worried about. So I thought that I thought that seemed sensible. Second, I saw a persistent effort, and this is where I do think the execution requires some uh, take it back to the garage and uh, fine-tune it. But they were attempting consistently in every intervention publicly, from the prime minister to cabinet ministers uh, on down the line, to draw contrast. So, so they never just spoke about themselves or spoke an issue about an issue. They always then contrasted themselves with Polyev. And again, I think there's a lot of work to do in, ter in terms of landing that. I still think that their their dictionary for going at Polyev is is badly filled with a lot of highfalutin, get a load of me kind of language. But I saw I saw an attempt to do something there. So I thought that that was, I thought that was better. And again, I'm not going to say that that's going to turn the polls around, but I thought that there was at least, there was evidence of a consistent strategy. And now I think, you know, the question is, as the House resumes, how are they going to perpetuate that? The one, and I'll stop here, the one big question that continues to dog them, in my view, is even when they get those things moving in the right direction, they are still relying on mainstream media, on CTV and CBC and talk radio to carry their message. And so you have to ask yourself, even when you get it right, when you're behind, you're not throwing the long ball. They're throw This is like, this is just like, five yards out to the flat to the running back and see if he can make some yards. So, you know, the, there's still, they're still just running on one leg. Like, you know, like, so they have a good scrum that how many fucking people hear about and who knows about, and this week they're going to be back in the house. And so maybe they'll have a more fired up and focused question period that how many people know about and how many Canadians hear about. This is my concern is that I see, I see progress, but you're behind and you got to alter you got to you got to alter the environment and i don't think that incrementally better efforts um are necessarily going to do it that being said i thought hey, at least there was a sign of a strategy it was better than what they did in the summer just hold on just stick with you for a second one of the things that they've clearly decided to do is have their ministers 
particularly on social media, delivering hard negative messages. What do you think about that? Well, I, again, I I think that's I think that's sensible, but it feels to me like, uh, all right, then let's try this strategy. And by that, I mean, you know, I think if you're sitting around a room and you said, how do we penetrate with people? How do we try to alter the field of gravity here? You would say, all right, let's dedicate $7 million over the next number of months. Let's get the best, most gripping creative. Let's bombard them in places that people are going to be paying attention to, like the NFL playoffs, later in the year in the NHL playoffs, like, like you know, target your audience, figure out like where, where are 55 to 70-year-old women uh, get to them. But they don't do that. They don't do that because whatever reason, whether they think that that's not the right thing to do, as we've discussed ad infinitum, or whether they don't have the money, but instead they say, all right, then here's what we're going to do. We'll more tightly coordinate our use of Twitter. But they've got the misfortune of trying to execute a social media strategy at precisely the time that social media is literally cratering. It's in as much crisis as mainstream media. And so it doesn't connect you with as many people as it used to. It doesn't have the influence. It doesn't have the priming of public opinion and the priming of elite media opinion that it used to. It's kind of a tube that's tied to nothing except a fucking bunch of nut bars and fanboys. So I I see, again, tighter coordination. I'm very worried the execution isn't going to produce results. So, I'm loath to admit this, but with the dizzying pace of digital advancement wreaking havoc on the aging brain of Hurley, I find myself looking for a way to mentally categorize it all. Some simple nomenclature that lends a little context to all the tech talk. So, I'm dubbing these next few weeks of messaging from our presenting sponsor, TELUS, now, nearly now, and next. We kicked it off last week how TELUS has made it their mission to continually invest in and innovate their networks. So we have the bedrock connectivity that'll make now, nearly now, and next-gen automation work across so many industries. If you were paying attention, you might remember I did a drive-by mention of the Fed's promise of an all-EV future. Let's explore that a little more. Here's the shorthand. Internal combustion engines are going to be gonzo, replaced by electric vehicles by 2035. A relatively short 11 years, but a long road to get there. Think of the infrastructure required to support a nation of EV drivers, a seamlessly interconnected 5G network of charging stations, efficiently exchanging data and communicating with the power grid intelligently without straining it so that we all get the most convenient, sustainable and reliable charging experience. See, I told you there was the specter of a lot of tech talk but as much as it all might seem, it's nearly now, Hurley Burleyites. None of it happens, though, without continual investment in our world-class networks. TELUS has been making those investments. I've already talked about their recent partnerships with Jolt and Flow to uptick the accessibility and quality of EV chargers across Canada. But let's not understate it. Far more investment is required if all of us are getting behind an EV wheel by 2035. For that to happen... We need regulatory conditions that continue to make those investments make sense. And I haven't even mentioned the connectivity required to make the self-driving thing a reality. Autonomous vehicles? We'll talk about that next. Hey, Corey, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is you you need to understand your opponent's appeal to attack it. And I, I wonder whether the federal liberals are too outraged by Polyev to effectively attack him, because they seem to me to attack him from places that only people who already hated him would have, would agree with. 
yeah, it's coming from the echo chamber, right? <clears throat> like it's a it's a straw man version of Polyev. Look, like you know, his appeal is certainly being around the economy and cost of living issues, and and uh, not some you know well of of right wing conspiratorial hate. Like that's not that's not why he's where he is in the polls. It's because he does have a, a broad middle class uh, appeal right now, and they need to get that mojo back. I, like if we're to say what what, it, what went well for them during their caucus meeting, I think they came in with a plan. They came in with a plan to. Uh, have some announceables on areas that that are of concern to a lot of people. So, you know, that's a, that's a market improvement over the last uh, retreat that they held. Um, I think they had a little bit of bad luck uh, in terms of the uh, convoy ruling, and I'll maybe reserve my comments on that because we're going to be talking about it later. But that yeah. certainly disrupt the flow that they they had going around that. Um, <clears throat> but you know, I, I want to come back to something that Scott was talking about, which is, you know, reliance on, on mainstream media and all of that. Uh, I think back in 2015, um, uh, the liberals kicked the ass of the conservatives in terms of social media engagement and being smart and savvy about how they used those tools, how they structured their advertising buys. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly had my notepad out. Uh, and and you know employed a lot of the same things in 2018 with Ford and doubled down on on some of those things. I think that that Polyev and the Conservatives are absolutely trouncing them in new media right now, and being far more savvy about it. Like that landscape has changed, and even things like putting your members out with har harsher messages uh, and, and social platforms, which is I think the right thing to do. Uh, if you're not doing that with dollars behind it right now. You're not. No one's seeing it. Um, you know the, the algorithms for for Meta for like Facebook, Instagram, are are biased against news, against politics. Like they, you know, they don't want their platforms used in that way uh, to the degree that they were back in 2015 or 2018 or you know you name it. Like the, there's yeah. been a gravitation away from that. So the only way that you're you're going to actually have people seeing it is if you put dollars behind it. So where are the dollars behind it? So like, I just think there's a lack of sophistication in, in their approach, uh, especially on the advertising side. And uh, I think there's super sophistication on the conservative side right now. Um, you know, and Twitter slash X has really changed. It used to be a predominantly uh, progressive forum used for bullying people about pronouns, etc. Now it's the Elon Musk version. It's, it's a mirror opposite. And, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of being able to influence even the mainstream media through that platform, because I never think it was terribly connected to, to real people, it's changed. And uh, I'm not sure that their playbook has changed with uh, the changing times and changing media landscape. Yeah. Scott, can, can I have just one quick note yeah, on that, go, David, just because yeah. I think Corey and I are you know, roughly fishing in the same pond. You asked about the the focus of their message. I think those things all come together is that if you look at whether it's their scrums or whether it's the social media content, independent of whether we think that those, that, you know, those channels and those platforms are, are yielding results, it's also not obvious who their audience is. Like it doesn't feel like, and particularly because of the way they craft the message and what's the appeal of the message, what's the fundamental critique of, of Polyev. And as you say, it feels a bit blunt. This is where I was hinting at earlier when I said it's time to take it into the garage and fine tune it because it feels kind of blunt and kind of partisan. Like it feels sort of, well, we don't like them and you don't either, as opposed to saying, 
all right, the demographic we need to go after is, they might think it's younger voters, we might think it's older women, whatever it is, but I don't see evidence that that message is being crafted with that sort of sophistication. So um, not only are they not purchasing and putting money behind it, um, so you ensure that it connects to the people, to somebody, but I don't see that the message is actually being crafted with that audience in mind. It just feels kind of like of a reflex liberal, fuck man, like don't we all hate this guy, right? Like, and I don't think that's good enough right now. I think they've got to like find the crack and Jimmy, 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 that crack wider. Well, right. like, but don't you think where they're really missing it? And and this is sort of shocking uh, to, to me because I think the biases are, are should be in favor of the liberals on this. I think they're missing the mark on empathy. I think that's really where where their their message is 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 breaking down. Like, um, you know, they keep you know holding up the straw man that that you uh, somehow Polyev is about fermenting anger, and that the people who are supporting them are very angry. I think the biggest uh, you know, uh, emotion that's out there amongst people uh, worried about the economy right now is anxiety. It's it's uh, you know there's 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 fear and anxiety around you know mortgage payments about you know. Uh, putting food on the table, like food insecurity numbers, as you've mentioned many times, uh, are as high as, like, higher than they've ever been, right? So the, those aren't, aren't angry messages. I mean, they, they may get to anger at times, but it's, it's far more around anxiety. And it's shocking to me that, that Polyev is, is winning the empathy battle over Trudeau. Like, Trudeau is like, like a giant sloppy hug, like, you know, like that's sort of, you know, where he comes from. He's, you know, Mr. Emotion, Mr. Emotive. Um, yet, uh, yet Polyev is, I, I think, trouncing him on that. I think he's actually able to articulate far better that those emotions that people are feeling. And, you know, when we talk about meeting the voters where they are, like that's the starting point. But, but Corey, the, the problem might be there that I, I don't, I think that Trudeau's feeling unappreciated. Yeah, I think, I, I, and so it's hard for him to express empathy for the people out there when he himself is feeling, "Hey, I've been working hard at this. I've been doing a good job. The other guy's terrible. What's with this? You're grumpy. You're grumpy." Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's yeah. all about them, right? Uh, but mm. but that's a very common perspective for uh, for prime ministers about to lose. <laughs> yeah. it, it really is right i mean you know you know that when you hear a government or a political leader f start framing a message and this is ubiquitous with the liberal message when it starts with listen i know that people are feeling frustrated because like it's you know the psychology as Corey says to my mind at least this is my argument i would make and by the way it's always harder to do this when you're the incumbent so let's put, like let's put that on the table but yeah. To me, this the psychology is that rather than making a complaint about how Polyev conducts politics, he's a rage farmer, he's just trying to siphon off rage, right? Address the thing that people care about, which isn't the politics of it, and address the concerns that people have. I Don't you want to be unlocking a psychology? Don't you want to unlock the question in those same people's minds as to whether Polyev's policies will make that thing that causes them anxiety worse whether he'll actually like so it isn't so much like listen to me talk about he does politics wrong he just wants to feed off of rage we're not going to do that we're better than that who gives a fuck right rather it should be if you're anxious about your job and you're anxious about whether or not core services are going to be there and you're pissed off that government doesn't seem to get that fundamental contract i pay taxes 
I get basic things, then understand, right? Here's three examples of where he's going to make that worse, not better. And if you think that fear is eight on a scale of one to 10 now, it's going to be 12 once you're a year and a half into a polyev government. I'm rambling, but like, I just like, that's the psychology, no, this constant saying, lecture of how he does politics. It may be true, but it doesn't get you anywhere. No, but you're also saying something else is true, Scott, which is that it's quite natural and normal for the government at this stage of its mandate to be behind and facing a difficult re-election campaign. That's normal. There's no excuse for being at 25%. There is more than a 25% market for this party, and there's less than a 40% market for Polyev, if you really do this properly. That's what I believe. I think that's true. Right. Like for conservative, and it's not about Polyev or Trudeau, like I think that's mm -hmm. just baseline true for the liberals versus conservatives in Canada historically. Right. Right. <clears throat> um, Get, getting to 40 is a lot harder for conservative than it is for liberal in this country, and it always yeah. has been. Okay. Another example, I'm just I'm just going to keep riffing on the same thing. I sound like such, I mean, one thing is I hate sometimes week after week, we sort of tell these guys what they do fucking wrong. And, you know, so <laughs> you feel like a jerk off. But I did not like, actually, you know what? Let's hold it because it's going it, to, it, it folds into the convoy things and the emergencies act. So I'll just shut up now. Scott, it's all on the margin, right? Anybody in their circumstance would be facing a difficult re-election campaign. The question is how difficult it has to be, Right. Um, yeah. So it, it, what we're talking about is not the tectonic plates of what's happening. It's the, it's, it's the incremental stuff. So right about now, publicly traded companies are reporting a slew of data from the last quarter of 2023. They have to do that. Investors make decisions based on metrics that measure performance. The market is pitiless. There's no hiding. So anyway, there's something called a beat, that happens when a company's performance actually exceeds the forecasts of expert stock analysts. A beat is a coveted thing, and our sponsor, CN, just delivered one. 2023 was a good year for the railway. I'm not going to dwell here on the crass financial details. Suffice it to say, shareholders are happy and analysts are impressed. There are other metrics I find more interesting. The rate of workplace injuries came in at a record low, down 13%. CN relentlessly preaches that safety is priority one and sinks a lot of money into safety, and it's clearly paying off. The other prime directive at CN is just as simple. Trains must, must leave the station on time and arrive on time. Shippers crave punctuality. So do farmers and manufacturers and foresters. Better punctuality increases something called car velocity, the number of miles the average train travels in a day. The better the velocity, the more efficient the system, and the happier everybody is. CN's car velocity improved 9% last year. That's a big deal. I noticed that something called through-dwell improved last year, too, by 8%. Basically, that's how long a train sits in a terminal. The less time, the better. Why should anyone but shareholders care about this stuff? I'll tell you why. As I have noted from time to time in past pods, there is no single thing more important to the Canadian economy than the country's railway network. Canadian Railways, and CN is the biggest, reliably move $350 billion worth of goods a year, and about half of Canada's exports. A freight train takes hundreds of trucks off the road. Rail dramatically reduces greenhouse gas emissions, and Canadian Railways are the safest in North America. 
healthy railways performing at a high level for customers, shippers, and shareholders mean a healthy economy, which is sweet news after all the disruption we've put up with since 2020. Corey, what do you think about Polyev's uh, candidate recruitment? I mean, one of the things about being 15 points up is that people get interested in running for you. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I, don't, I don't know the person they're poaching from Ford, um, but I, do, I have heard from my friends out in the BC Liberal Party for years about Ellis Ross and what an impressive person he is. Yeah, well, look, uh, when you're up in the polls, you get better candidates. Like, it's just, that's a fact. Um, I think, you know, depending on the on the person, federal politics can have a greater allure for, for a lot of people in, in public life. Yeah. And uh, compensation is, at least, uh, I'm not sure what the, the pay is in, in BC, but in Ontario, like, uh, your baseline salary as an MP is, is better than your salary as a senior cabinet minister uh, in the province. So, like there's, you know, there's a there's a lot of appeal there. In in the case of Parm Dill, he's been an MP before, so obviously has some uh, some interest in that level of government. Um, uh, but you know, you're going to have a, a you know a really good case to bring forward to to politicians at every level of government to uh, come join the team, and you know, you can dangle the po- you know potential of being a cabinet minister, the rest, uh, which is going to be attractive to a significant number of folks. And um, I guess one of the things it does for them, though, is if they're bringing in folks who weren't part of it before, it gives them an opportunity to broaden, to to tell their story about a broader group of people that are joining this movement and a higher, perhaps, uh, you know, the potential cabinet thing. The thing that Harper did when he brought in uh, all the Ontario guys, all the Ontario guys, right? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know, and I think you saw more of that at that time. Is you know, when when you're trying to lure people from opposition uh, uh, to another opposition party with a chance, like a good chance of being government, that's that adds another layer of appeal to the whole thing. Um, you know, it, it, it's yeah, it I, you know, it's like it's it's all good when you're up in the polls, especially going in. It helps you in two big ways. Uh, the first is fundraising. And, and you're seeing that in every quarterly, you know, results that are coming out of Ottawa in terms of that, you know, Polly is absolutely trouncing uh, the government in terms of, of fundraising, but also candidate recruitment. And, and well, you know, look, candidates in and of themselves uh, uh, are, are not overly impactful in terms of what they, they bring to the table at, at the polling booth. But it's it's probably with a good candidate two or three points and two or three points in a close seat and you know Milton for instance where Parm uh, Gills from uh, represents right now is a close seat it's a swing seat so you know two or three points with uh, coming with an incumbent uh, can be the difference between winning and losing so you know it's uh, it makes a difference on the margin in all those marginal seats. Don't you also see and Scott maybe you have something to say about this? Don't you also see by the kind of people they're profiling in their current caucus and the candidates they're recruiting. So uh, Parm Gill is South Asian, I believe, and Alice Ross is a prominent Indigenous person in British Columbia. They are inoculating themselves. For sure. I guess yeah, certainly- some of the traditional attacks that have come at them or some of the traditional questions that have been raised. For sure. And, and we've seen that consciously... Being developed. I mean, 
you know, Melissa's a friend of all of ours, Melissa Lanceman, right? But, you know, uh, high profile female Jewish uh, lesbian, uh, you know, as your deputy leader. Now, the fact that she's also been steeped in politics her entire political life helps a lot because she's got that, she has that antenna. Um, but it's it's it, it's smart. It's smart to inoculate yourself on that. I mean, we'll we'll see. I, it, there is also, um, like uh, I'm just going to go on a hobby horse here. In my home riding, just word broke yesterday. Karen Stintz is going to run for the conservative nomination against Marco Mendicino and Aikleton Lawrence. And I kind of laugh at that because literally, Karen Stintz is the poster child for what for everything. Uh, that the federal conservative and Pierre Polyev and, and most of the broad sort of conservative kind of message track across North America stands against, right? I mean, she's the epitome of the, excuse me, I'm not going to talk about greasy politics. This is about evidence-based policy prescriptions here. And yes, it's good for you to have higher taxes. And yes, it's good for you to, you know, uh, use cars as plant holders in downtown Toronto. And we're going to evaporate them all and uh, all this kind of shit. And now suddenly she's going to, so I'll enjoy watching her and she's a great catch for them. She has name recognition and all that sort of stuff. But like in a world where you get people like that, who say, well, you know, I've always been driven by principle and politics. It's like, well, this is just crass opportunism. It wouldn't be a problem for me because I've always portrayed myself as <laughs> just a complete weather vane. But how are you going to square that circle? So I'll, I'll enjoy watching that. Yeah. Well, that's ne we've never seen that before in politics, right? No, I know. It's just that when, it's the hypocrisy. It's when someone says, well, I, my God, you know, like how in hell is she going to find any argument to square herself on carbon taxes okay. and down and, you know, 15 minute cities. Like, I mean, can't conservatives campaign aggressively against 15 minute cities as though it's pedophilia for Christ's sake. And then, you know, she's going to be like, oh, that's, I'm comfortable. Look, uh, what percentage of people even like, know what a fucking 15 minute city is? Nobody knows what the fuck that means. Exactly. That's my point. And that's been the, that's been the brand of politics that Karen Stintz has practiced her whole entire adult life. And now she's going to say, oh, but. You know, I'm, I fit sure, comfortably sure. here. Sure. But, but have, anyway, you know, it, she's going to, you know. A beautiful mix of uh, hypocrisy and opportunism has always been the mother's milk of politics. So, like, it's not, <laughs> it's not a shock. It's not <laughs> a shock. <laughs> All right, we have a clipping. We have a clipping. It's from political Zianlum. Justin Trudeau and his ministers fired back on Thursday against a political provocateur from south of the border, Tucker Carlson. With speeches in Alberta that trashed Canada's government, mocked LGBTQ people, and knocked mainstream media, Carlson triggered outrage in Ottawa and furnished himself to the Trudeau team as an irresistible political target. Um, Employment Minister Randy Boisneau, the first openly gay MP to be elected in Alberta, called Carlson the mouthpiece of the mega-conservative far-right and denounced his hateful comments about LGBTQ people homophobic and transgender jokes throughout the day. It's deplorable, and I won't stand for it. Um, Danielle Smith. During her back and forth with Carlson, Smith complained about Ottawa and encouraged Carlson to target Canada's environment minister. I wish you would put Stephen Gilbo in your crosshairs, she said to loud cheers and applause. In Ottawa on Thursday, Gilbo accused Smith of normalizing rhetoric that could be interpreted as an incitement of political violence. Corey, was this an event of some significance? I don't think particularly. Um, uh, Carlson 
And uh, I'll say this as somebody who you know started a cable news conservative cable news network. Uh, you know that business is it's infotainment. It's you know it's a right wing version of of John Stewart and the Daily Show, or uh, you know it's it's making you know making uh, entertainment content uh, for a political audience. And there's a market for that in Canada. There's a market for that in the U.S. Uh, there's a right-wing market, there's a left-wing market, everybody has their champions and folks that come out. But, you know, what I would say is in any of the places where Tucker Carlson uh, appeared, if, you know, Polyev wanted to fill an even bigger room uh, across town on the same day, he could. And uh, I, I don't think he's reliant on on having to uh, piggyback off the likes of Tucker Carlson in order to fill a room or to do well in politics. Like, I don't think that's, that's really a thing. I think this is a political entertainer coming to Canada and, and doing his bet. And, you know, um, you know, we could talk about Tucker Carlson in a bunch of different ways if we wanted to, like, I think he's, a, you know, quite an intelligent guy. I've met him a number of times over the years, but I also think if you look at, uh, some of the emails and things that came out during the uh, uh, Dominion uh, uh, lawsuit in in the U.S., he doesn't believe about half of what he puts on air, uh, right. and like that it's a fairly crass uh, pandering to uh, an audience who wants to hear certain things, and he serves those up, and he makes a lot of money doing it. So, you know, uh, look, I, if I were to if I were to knock him for doing that, then you know, you guys would have to knock uh, John Stewart for doing that. Like everybody's doing that that same bit. Uh, but, you know, does it matter in Canadian politics? I don't particularly think so. I, I think there is some currency in Trudeau and the Liberals trying to go after that to try to, to, to bait uh, Polyev. But I, I think it's such an obvious punch that you can sidestep it uh, without any difficulty. Like it's not, it, 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 it only works if you take the bait. And uh, I just think uh, Polyev's way too uh, sophisticated an operator to, to take the bait on. Every day, Canada's 19 nuclear reactors reliably generate 15% of Canada's electricity, all without emitting any greenhouse gases. In fact, nuclear power is Canada's second largest source of GHG-free electricity. In Ontario, nuclear power plays an even bigger role with over half of its electricity coming from nuclear. And when you dig deeper, looking at the entire life cycle and factory and activities like plant operations and mining, nuclear power is the lowest carbon intensive source of electricity generation per megawatt hour of electricity generated. Today's podcast sponsor, Bruce Power, is one of the world's largest nuclear generating facilities. Located in Tiverton, Ontario, and responsible for avoiding about 19 million tons of greenhouse gases a year. While the company produces large volumes of emissions-free electricity, critical to Ontario staying off coal, as well as continued system reliability, in 2021, Bruce Power became the first nuclear operator in North America to commit to achieving net zero greenhouse gases from site operations by 2027. That means it minimizes and offsets emissions from routine undertakings such as vehicles, machinery, buildings, and equipment to get to net zero status by 2027. And with investments being made to increase the electricity output from the Bruce Power site, which would further displace GHG emissions from Ontario's electricity sector, 
Bruce Power worked collaboratively to create the first carbon offset protocol for nuclear generation to help industries reach their own net zero goals. So what does all this add up to? By increasing the amount of clean energy it produces, Bruce Power is helping to decarbonize the economy and meet the increasing demand for electricity as more businesses and consumers turn to electrification. You know, Scott, I may be getting repetitive from last week, but I have, I have polling that shows that a lot of these um, American personalities are actually quite well known in Canada. And the ones that are associated with like the Fox News and MAGA are not well thought of in Canada. They're pretty well known and not well thought of. They don't have, not perceived the way they are in the States at all. And <clears throat> if I was working on this campaign, I think I, to go back to what I was saying last week, I think I would be trying to sully the name of the conservative party by pointing out its links with these people. Yep. Right. And I think that that, I don't think that's a silver bullet, but I think that's corrosive. Uh, to the conservative brand. And they, if I was Polyev, I would have been unhappy that Tucker Carlson was in Canada doing what he was doing. I agree with all of that. And I think in a, in, in a, in a year, that's going to be that Canadian news and Canadian dis discussion of politics is going to be polluted with the U.S. election. And um, you're going to hear the Biden campaign pounding away, perhaps in losing fashion, but pounding away on mega, mega, mega. Um and maybe nobody knows what the word mega means right now, but I think just, you know, making that association and making that association in particular with, um, you know, with a Tucker Carlson kind of personality who A, is well known uh, and, and does have actually fairly high name recognition and B, uh, something Corey said, which I think is really important because I think it does speak to the true reprehensibility of characters like him, just that he's... Um, He's playing all these people for fools, right? He doesn't even believe in this shit, right? He's a charlatan. He's just trying to like pick your pocket. And so when someone like Danielle Smith is willing to sit and break bread, have dinner, get her photo taken, sit on a stage, parry questions, laugh, giggle, all that sort of shit with a charlatan, with just somebody who doesn't even share those values. He's just like, we know because of these emails and texts that, um, he thinks you guys are all fucking fools, right? So I think making that association, pounding away on it makes sense. And I, I would try to do that, but I would try to do it with some skill again. So I come back to the, I don't know that that's necessarily, I know that it drives conservatives up the, cre the, the creek and they go, oh, I don't make bullshit, predictable thing. And you'll hear some of the mainstream media will echo that. But I would pound away on that. I think it is the belly in this boxing match, and I pound away and see if you can get the conservatives to drop their gloves a little bit by going at it. But I hated the cabinet minister's scrum on it. And what I hated about it was that they made it about them. Who gives a fuck? Like this whole thing where Gibo gets hyperventilated about when she says crosshair, she's you know putting a target on me and that creates... And I understand there are nut bars out there who actually might take there that are, literally. Scott, so but that's an expression I've used all my life as a yeah, metaphor. I know. Yeah, no, okay. no, no, that's I, my I, point. My point is, my, my point is, right... He can be outraged about it, and he might even be sincerely outraged, and he thinks, well, you know, in a in this in, a, in the crazy toxic politics, but he didn't look sincerely outraged. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if he is outraged, if he is genuinely outraged and upset and anxious about it. It's still not in your strategic political interest to make that the focus of this. It shouldn't be about what are these guys saying about me and how awful that is, or like 
it's got to be about the fact that this is who these people are. This is who they associate. Even when they know that these people are liars and charlatans and bullshit and just pound and pound and pound away on that. Don't make it about yourself, you know, make it about the voter. And that, that's what bothered me about that scrum was they were asking people, please, I invite you to be outraged for me. Yeah. We don't care about you. You, you, may, you may think... You may think that he's going to lower your cost of living and improve your standard of living, but he is putting me in some risk. Yeah, right. Well, you're, you're missing a potential upside there, guys. Like, if you know, if he's truly threatened and he needs, like, a, a you know, the police to to provide additional security for him, they'll be close on hand and can intervene if he tries to, you know, chain himself to a tree or do what the other things that have got him arrested in the past. Uh, it's a double-edged sword, so you should watch out for that. But look, uh, you know, let me. You know, I've seen uh, Daniel Smith get a bunch of heat around this, but like, I'll point out that the Daniel Smith being there is not uh, a dumb thing for her. Like in terms of the politics and where the median and in, in that no, is it's on just some wrong. of these issues, it's, it's, it's no, it's no, you know, there's no uh, harm to her political coalition. It's just the the one that uh, Polly is trying to attract uh, is a little different than what it is just in Alberta. And he's going to win the Alberta seats no matter what. So then embrace you know, it, then embrace so it. Don't insult me by going on TV and saying, you know what, just because I had dinner with them and I had a photograph taken <laughs> with them and I spent two hours on stage with them and I laughed and commiserated with them. Don't make the mistake of saying that I'm stapled to the things he says right in front of me as I nod and smile. Fuck but, you, but, but you are associated with them and you embraced and invited the association. At the moment, I don't. But care I don't think that Daniel. association. At the is moment, I don't care her. about Danielle Smith. Screw Danielle right. Smith. I know. But, I know. I'm just being but, pissy. But I assume that the liberals are going to make Polyev carry Danielle Smith around the country on his back. And Which so, are. one of the things I'm looking forward to is how he breaks with her. I think that one of the most challenging things he's going to face is how he cuts her loose from him. Um, and if he doesn't do that, he's going to pay a price on CPP and pensions, and he's going to pay some other policy prices. Um, so he's going to have to cut her loose. The question is when and how. That's why the well, liberals are going to have, have to be a lot more sufficient on, on the pension issue. On the pension not, issue not, sufficiently. not sufficiently. Not no, sufficiently. Not sufficiently. The liberals are going to be a lot more sophisticated. They are going to have to think two steps ahead in terms of, again, how they construct this argument. Um and because I do think he's going to pull a sister soldier. It just, it begs, it's such a huge definitional opportunity for him. Yes, it's a challenge, David, but I think he's strong enough. I think his coalition is broad enough now. I think that he can, I think he can play that card. And it's just a question of when it works for him best. So the liberals have to anticipate that that's going to have to happen. And they can't just make that the the nature of the allegation. They have to pound and pound and pound in a different place so that, you know, that, that the association is more damning and more sustaining um, because he is going to do that. He's completely going to, at some point, cut her loose and then use that as a triangulation move. Well, I think on the pension stuff, like they started to move down that road and he, you know, uh, said, look, I'm not going to be there to support that. And, you know, I think that was a, you know, a, a very dangerous line of attack for the conservatives if the liberals had sustained it. But, you know, they let us, you know, next slip out of the noose on it. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, they're going to have to be, you know, better at actually sustaining these attacks in a, in a credible way. Um, but I think, I think they the can come back to I think, it, Corey. But, but I think the Conservatives, um, you know, uh, were pretty successful in getting Smith to back away from it. Because guess what I haven't seen her talk about in months and months? That issue. And uh, I think there's a correlation. You know, I, I, if I were a betting man, I would bet that uh, our friend Jenny probably made a few calls there and, and got their attention. Were, were they pleasant calls, Corey? Oh, well, uh, knowing Jenny, I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were very pleasant. <laughs> I, I, we've both been on the receiving end of some of those calls in the past. So. But, for sure, I can but speak from personal takes experience. Is, but all of that takes for granted, uh, Corey, the assumption that Danielle Smith will say, "Listen, we've uh, conducted some consultations. We've considered this idea, and it doesn't appear as though it's got enough broad support to proceed." I don't know that she's made that decision. I'm not sure she will make that decision. She might just take, you know, the Bowie knife, clench it between her teeth, and run straight off the cliff. Let's hope it's possible. But you know, if your if your strategy is the other guys, you know, uh, you know, fucking up really badly, then it's it's probably not the best strategy out there. When you're at twenty four percent, you're going to have to have some strategies that exist. <laughs> well, that hope, fin, hope, fin is, hope is not a strategy. It's, no, it's but hope and hard. Bad. No, but hope and hard work are. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, you got to be smart too, right? <laughs> Just. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our last big topic of the week is um, the uh, federal court ruling that the government's use of the Emergencies Act to uh, dispel the trucker occupation in Ottawa um, violates charter. And um, boy, um, I think that that also really removes a chip from the table for the Liberals uh, that they probably intended to play. I don't know how effective it would have been in any event, but I think it takes makes it much more difficult to, um, to play that chip. And I presume puts a tremendous amount of wind in the sails of, um, of the people that were uh, opposed to that legislation. And I particularly see it for the Conservative Party as an enormous fundraising opportunity. Corey, what do you yeah. think? Well, look, uh, I don't think it's it's particularly important development like in the grand scheme of things, but insofar that it has any effect, uh, it's it's favorable for the Conservatives. Look, I, I think it it uh, you know gives uh, an endorsement that that it was overreach on the part of the government to bring in the Emergencies Act. You know, my, my take on that might be a little different than others. Like, I think it's ultimately was used because uh, police don't do their job. I don't think, you know, emergency powers were required to to uh, to get rid of the protest uh, that was, you know, the occupation of downtown Ottawa. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, less the downtown Ottawa and more the, you know, bridge to uh, in Windsor and, and the border crossings were actually, uh, you know, a, maybe not existential, but an incredibly uh, important thing to to, to dissipate. Uh, you know, you were going to have tens of thousands of people out of work uh, because of uh, disruptions to the supply chain if you allowed the border crossings to stay closed. So, like, I, I think, you know, 
but but that's a that's a long. That was commentary. all captured in the that was all captured in the ruling, right? Like it was yeah, incredibly it's all captured nuanced, there. Incredibly nuanced but, ruling, really. But, I mean, you, in the broad scheme of things, all you hear about is what the actual ruling was. But the guy, the judge said, I probably would have implemented it myself in the situation I was in, and you know, it's sort of a sixty forty call on his. The way uh, look, I, I I think so, but you know, I, I think this is a conversation to have with Paul Wells, who's written a lot, uh, you know, on this topic that I think is quite quite astute and nuanced around the interaction between uh, police and and political leadership, and you know, people doing their job and all of that, you know. But uh, look, it, it is it is an endorsement, you know, fundamentally of some of the points that Paulia was making around around this. Uh, it does give him, you know, an endorsement uh, of that judgment from a very unlikely source, which is the judiciary, which, you know, frankly, in Canada has not been conservative over the years. Uh, and, uh, it, yeah, will it help them with fundraising? Yeah, I think it will, but like very much on the margin in the sense that I think they were going to be raising the same amount of money from the same people anyway, and they've right. demonstrated uh, a great deal of proficiency in doing so. So, you know, but it, it, probably the biggest impact is what you were referring to, uh, David, which is uh, it takes the, the clarity of that wedge, the sharpness of that wedge away from the liberals. They can't say unequivocally, you know, there's people on this side and, uh, and therefore peace, order and good government and, you know, keeping the border open. And there, there are these people on the other side that are, you know, uh, conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers and all of that. That wedge is not so sharp anymore. Now it's more like, you know, a very dull, you know, uh, uh, wedge that's not really going to, to, to cleave voters in the way that it would have prior to this ruling. So we'll see what happens on appeal. But even if the, the government wins on appeal, it's muddied. It's muddied. It's, it's not a sharp wedge anymore. Totally. Scott, I presume that I was going to see at some point in the election campaign and I say that because that appears to be when the Liberals are going to run advertising, is in the election campaign. So I assumed that I was going to see a clip of Pierre Polyev delivering coffee to a convoy occupier. Um, and I, I, I wonder whether that will play the same way now. I think it will. I'd run at the fire, not away from it in this case. And I, I'll concede that the ruling actually muddies the waters, um, which, you know, to be honest with you, I hope the courts do sort of provide some clarity on this and sort of say what is the proper test and threshold and all that kind of stuff. That's got nothing to do with politics. I think the politics of this are already settled. I think that people, I think two things have happened. One, people have a point of view about whether or not it should have been uh, employed. And I think that skews positively for the liberals. I think that it's in their favor, independent of this decision uh, and independent of whatever a, a future appeal may or may not determine. Uh, second, I think that Polyev has, in terms of the ways built as vote coalition, I think he slipped into another gear, another phase, another stage. And so I actually don't think that Polyev is excited about returning uh, to talk of the convoy, excited about returning to that, you know. And so if I were the liberals, I might I, I might be encouraged to say, you're, you're fucking right. We invoked it and we don't apologize for it. And when we saw a provincial government fail to discharge its responsibilities and the local police force failed to discharge its responsibilities as 
both Rouleau and this judge point out, then you're goddamn right. Somebody's got to fucking take charge. Someone's got to make a tough decision. And we did. And we'll appeal this thing and we want to go. And those who stood with those, right, who waved the flags and said, go fuck yourself and engaged in a month long of, I, that those folks are wrong. And I'd hammer and I put that out on anyway. And uh, I don't know that it'll get you anywhere, but I wouldn't shrink from it. I wouldn't blink about it. I wouldn't say, oh my goodness, now that this ruling has occurred, we are robbed of that issue. I would try to not talk about it and move on if I were them. Like, you know, nobody wants to relitigate the pandemic. And and public opinion has shifted around pandemic and pandemic measures. And it's not towards bringing them back or having more of them. Like, imagine, you know, doesn't matter how big an outbreak we would have around COVID today. Do you think any government in their right mind would bring in the same kinds of measures that we saw uh, in, in, in COVID round one? Seems I don't think I don't I, I don't think you would, and I don't think people yeah. would comply with them if you tried. And I think you get your ass thrown out of government if you if you attempted to impose it, uh, despite that. So, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, Polyev and his his approach on this have, have one popular opinion, and and uh, it's a rear it's looking in the rearview mirror instead of at the windshield of the car to be talking about it. And and it's not wedging the same way it would have, you know, a, a year and a half ago, two years ago. Uh, so if I, I would just say, okay, well, the courts, you know, said what they said. Uh, we accept that. There's probably some changes to legislation around this stuff that have to happen. I'd try to do them as quickly and quietly as I could and move back to the economy and try to establish a narrative there uh, that's somewhat credible because that's ultimately what people are going to be voting on. They're not going to be voting on the fucking pandemic. All right. All right. Mr. Pinsent, can you wrap this show up, get everybody back in their seats from wherever they've wandered, and we'll have a hey you. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. All right. Scott, go ahead. My hate used to Mark Carney. I like Mark Carney. We know Mark Carney. Um, stop. I doing, like Mark Carney. Yeah, I know you do. Stop doing. Stop doing high-profile political television interviews. Doesn't with make no any point. Sense. With no point. To with them? no point. Stop doing it. I don't know if somebody's saying to you, "Listen, you got to play futures. Who knows how the ball's going to bounce?" But listen, like keep your name out there and uh, you know stay relevant. But this. This example of his interview with Vashi on question period this past Sunday, I think really, really runs a risk of, really runs a well, risk. Well, why of did he accept it? He doesn't have anything to say. There was no point to being on there, and I think it was very counterproductive. I think this whole sort of, you know, shtick where they, it, he himself had to actually make fun of his message track on air in order to, 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 to seem, to maintain any sense of uh, credibility. He had to literally sort of go, <laughs> I sort of, I'm talking shit here, right? Um, because like either run or don't run, right? Like run for office and say, I'm going to run at any level possible. Or if he feels he's being rebuffed and he's not going to do that, then put it behind you. But this kind of, this, sort of wink and a nudge and this, I might be there someday. I'm not saying no, I'm not closing a door. I, you know, I, I, I really think the tease is tired and it isn't actually going to maintain some relevance and some resonance with liberals. I think it'll irritate them because um, people are looking right now and saying, you know what? Our sideline looks depleted and scared and we'd like to have you on it playing ball with us. If you're not going to do that, that's fine. But don't, 
tell us maybe I might join once the game is over and see what the next, I'm not sure. Like these, these, these are harming you. They are not helping you. So stop. Yeah. I don't know who he's taking advice from, but I don't think that Iverson's advice is as sharp since he's moved to Costa Rica. <laughs> Corey? Uh, my hey is to our audience. Uh, I, I want to encourage everybody to tune into the Hurley Burley and listen to the last episode with Francis Donald. I thought it was one of the better ones that you've done, uh, uh, with the exception, of course, the ones that I've been on, David. <laughs> those those, those ones are still tremendous. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I thought it was like an incredibly insightful uh, uh, conversation that the two of you had. Uh, uh, around the economy, around uh, inflation generally, around you know, uh, how the mechanics behind the scenes of, of our economy actually function. Uh, really, really good stuff. And uh, so uh, a, a throw to our audience, uh, go check out the Hurley Burley and listen to that episode. It's really worth the, it's worth the time. Thanks a lot for that, Corey. Hey, Scott, you know, I, I quoted Corey's theory on um, core inflation being too high for 2% to be a reasonable target to her. And she said, well, either he's reading me or I'm reading him. Now, does Corey have writings on the economy that one would No, read? he does not. <laughs> I've enjoyed a lot of his publications over the years. It's a quite, a, quite, a, quite a wide subject matter. Uh, my Hey You goes out to Bonnie Crombie. Because there's an abacus poll in the Toronto Star that says job one is accomplished, which is clear differentiation in the polls from the NDP, establishing the Liberals as the clear second place alternative uh, to the Ford government. Haven't had a lot of time to do that. You haven't had great issues to do that. You're not in the legislature. Nonetheless, your leadership, that has happened under your leadership. So congrats to you. You got my, you got my shout out for the week. All right, everybody. Thank you for watching and listening to this show this week. We're hopeful that Jordan will be back next week, but we're not sure. But she is coming back. And, you know, you can probably influence her decision next week by lighting up the socials with some demand for her to make some time <laughs> for this podcast while she's, while she's uh, down in, in the jungle. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, as well as our sponsor, CN and Bruce Power. I love these two guys who are here with me week in and week out. Thank you guys for being here. We'll see you all next week with more of The Curse of Politics. Mm -hmm.